Just how sexy can sheep be? Is human blood tasty? <laughs> Today, we're going to be talking about Peter Curtin, known as the Vampire of Dusseldorf. Find out the signs your husband may be a murderer on this week's episode of Well, That's Horrible. Welcome back to this week's episode of Well, That's Horrible. I'm Reese, and not Travis. Oh, hey. But that is Travis. We'd, <laughs> <laughs> we'd like to dive into uh, adding a segment to the show where we tell horrible true stories that have happened to our listeners. And uh, so if you guys send those in to us, then we'll be able to read those on the show and add a new segment. So send in those entries, and uh, we'll start reading those stories. But before we debate about becoming vampires, let's jump into the segment we call Unprofessional Opinion. You know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. Unprofessional Opinion. All right, are you ready for the question? I'm so ready. All right, what would be the funniest sport if they had a required minimum amount of alcohol consumption before the game? <laughs> um, NASCAR. <laughs> <laughs> Just a bunch of drunk drivers <laughs> with way too much confidence in their abilities. <laughs> what would make it even better, especially since it's NASCAR, these are all professional drivers. Right. So they are obviously very confident in their driving abilities. And you just get them plastered. That's fantastic. Would <laughs> <Right>. be <laughs> NASCAR demolition derby. I would watch. You'd the see shit more of that, out of that shit. Like that guy recently that fucking like during the last lap, he just fucking drove into the wall and just accelerated as hard as he could because he didn't have to steer. Right. You can only use it for the last lap, but he fucking jumped up like. 14 places. Really? <laughs> yeah, and qualified. I had no idea. <laughs> yeah, you just... <laughs> just fucking... That's a drunk move if I've ever seen one. <laughs> like, just use the momentum of crashing into the wall. Against a wall <laughs> yeah. to win a race. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't win, but he did or place. Or at least he qualify. Placed. Yeah. <laughs> See, my thought was, I would love to watch a fencing match. <laughs> where they had to be drunk. Just a couple drunk dudes trying to poke each other with swords. Right. That'd be fucking quit it, Dale. <laughs> Why are you hitting me so hard? You've always been ugly. I'm glad your girlfriend left you. <laughs> all right. So now that we have all that figured out, uh, I think I'm going to put my beer down and tell a story. All aboard! All right, I will warn everyone that while last week wound up being less horrible than I expected, this story swings way the other direction and uh, in a very bad way. So buckle up, buckos. Peter Curtin is born in 1883 in Cologne, Mulheim, Germany. Can we call him Beef Curtin? <laughs> That would be funny. <laughs> <laughs> just the whole time. Just good, good old, old beef curtain. Good old beef curtain. <laughs> He's the third of 15 children. I mean, 
okay, when when you have 13 kids, statistically, some <laughs> of them are going to be murderers. That's just... <laughs> I the, don't know. The odds are not in... No. I don't know in, if that's the number. It's 13. In some statistics that I completely made up in my head, guaranteed, <laughs> if you pull any 13 people, at least one of them will be a murderer. Guaranteed. I mean, there's only two of us in here. We work in a room of about 13 people. <laughs> I mean, no. Interesting. No, the murderer left. <laughs> <laughs> no longer work with a murderer. No longer here. You can't really provide attentive parenting to 13 kids. Um, and Peter, is, his home is just filled with terrible events growing up. The family rents a one-bedroom apartment, oh, and they live in constant fear of their father's violent rampages. One, one fucking bedroom for 15 people. I, there are no 14 other people in the world <laughs> that I like enough right. to live in that close of proximity with. Right. I, I couldn't make it. I, I could not it. make it. I live in a decent-sized, you know, 1,200-square-foot right. house with yeah. five people, and that's fucking tiny. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, no wonder he became a murderer. <laughs> uh, he often comes home from the local bar. Uh, Peter's dad often comes back from the local bar and beats his children. Peter being... Good to have hobbies. <laughs> you got to stay busy. <laughs> Peter, being the eldest boy, tends to get the brunt of this violence. After smacking his kids around for a while... The dad then goes off uh, and goes after his wife, raping her in front of the children. Eventually, Peter's father is locked up for three years for trying to molest Peter's 13-year-old sister. Germany in the 1800s just doesn't have much of a focus on preventing domestic abuse. And uh, Peter's mother is forced to endure this horrible violence and abuse in complete silence. Seeing this constant abuse and sexual violence gives Peter a very twisted idea of what a healthy relationship looks like. I fucking bet. Yeah. At the age of nine, Peter is in a boat with some of his friends on a river near his home. He pushes one of the kids into the water. One of the other boys jumps into the water to help the drowning youngster. When the boys manage to make their way back to the boat... Peter keeps pushing them away with one of the oars until they finally slip under the water for the last time, never coming back up. The murder of the two boys is ruled an accident, and no charges are filed against Peter. Jesus, starting young. Yeah. Into his teens, Peter also begins to sexually assault his sisters along with his father. He also gets a job with a local dog catcher, but this dude is yet another horrible example for Peter. Uh, The man teaches Peter to masturbate and torture dogs. Those were his two areas of expertise. (laughs) I'm, I'm, okay, I'm a manager in my day job, and uh, I think I'm falling way short on my training programs because I have not taught a single person how to masturbate or torture animals. (laughs) Uh, The man also performs acts of bestiality, including stabbing sheep to bring himself to climax. 
Come on over here, Petey. Uh, now, I know we went over the details on how to jerk off yesterday, and uh, you seem to have that well in hand. Wink, wink. <laughs> uh, actually, I'd really prefer it if you stopped doing it while we're talking. Thank you. Anyway, the key with torturing animals is to make sure you use the dullest blade possible. I prefer a butter knife, or as we like to call it in Germany... A Kruppensplatchen. <laughs> Is that really how they say No, name? it's not. Oh, okay. <laughs> that was just a German word I made up. <laughs> a few years later, when Peter turns 16, he runs away from home. He lives by scrounging and stealing anything he can get his hands on, including food and clothing. The next 24 years are spent in and out of the German penal system for relatively mm, minor crimes. Penile. Penile. <laughs> <laughs> He claims that his brutal treatment in the correctional system makes him hellbent on destroying as much of the society around him as possible. By all reports, he's a charming, handsome young man, and when money allows, he is dressed extremely well. He doesn't seem to have any issue catching the eye of young women around him, but because the only example he knows of relationships is violent and rapey, none of the relationships last long, and he seems incapable of feeling or showing real love. In 1913, shortly after he gets out of prison again, he wanders the streets of Cologne looking for a target to rob. There's a little inn in Wolfstrasse, where he stumbles across a young girl asleep in her bed. The body of 10-year-old Christine Klein is discovered the next morning, and suspicion falls on her uncle, Otto. The night before, Otto had argued with Christine's father and threatened to do, quote, something he would remember all his life, unquote. Otto is charged with murder, and fortunately for him, he is acquitted by a jury. The true identity of Christine's murderer would not be determined for another 18 years. Mm, Jesus. Yeah. In 1914, as the clouds of war grow across Europe, Peter is called up in the service of the Kaiser. It turns out that following orders isn't exactly his jam, and he soon deserts. He's caught in fairly short order and spends the rest of the war in prison. The majority of his time is spent in solitary confinement, and he actually intentionally breaks prison rules to be sent back there. In a room by himself, he sits, daydreams, and obsesses about his violent thoughts. He dreams of attacking people, setting fires, and sabotaging railways in order to kill people more efficiently. In 1921, with the war over, Peter is released from prison and moves in with his sister in the tiny village of Altenburg. While living there, he meets his future wife. She's a former sex worker who had spent four years in prison after shooting a man who ditched her at the altar. Unlike <laughs> Peter, though, she actually seems to have a conscience and spends the rest of her life guilt-ridden, believing that her horrible environment is what she deserves for her act of violence. They get hitched in 1925, and Peter decides to get gainfully employed as a molder, uh, which was actually the same career his dad had chosen, um, and becomes an active member of the trade union. What the fuck is a molder? Uh, so, like, casting things... Oh. Um, in a mold in order okay. to, yeah. So that, it, it confused me for a minute until I saw it spelled. So <laughs> okay. thank you for clarifying because our <laughs> listeners are probably wondering the same thing. Uh, 
They move back to Dusseldorf for work, and Peter can begin to feel his self-control begin to crumble again. Over the next three years, he attacks four women, strangling them to unconsciousness, often during sex. It's about this time that he starts to dabble in arson as well. He discovers that he gets... He discovers that he gets sexual satisfaction from imagining that a drifter may be burning alive in the barn he had just burned to the ground. So he confessed to burning numerous structures to the ground, hoping that there was someone inside. Nice. Then, I mean, Jesus. <laughs> he just dabbles in it. Right. He, he's not a serious arsonist. He's, he's just, he just dabbles. Right. He just dabbles. Yeah. It's a hobby. It's a hobby, really. He never got paid for it. Once. Even not once. Even once. Not yep. a professional. Not <laughs> Semi-pro. Uh, <laughs> then in 1929, he stops a little eight-year-old girl, Rosa Olinger, as she walks through the streets of Dusseldorf. He stabs her three times and dumps her body under a hedge. Peter later states that he tried to burn the body with gasoline and had an orgasm at the peak of the fire. But the murder of Rosa is just the start of his string of attacks on women, girls, and men. At least one of his victims, Mariah Kuhn, survives, even after being stabbed 24 times. Jesus. He even admits that he returned to the scene of the attack several times, climaxing on numerous occasions. His reign of terror continues through 1930, and public anxiety and outrage grow with each new act of violence. The German newspapers fan the flames by referencing monsters and vampires. During the annual fair in the nearby town of Flea, Peter approaches two foster sisters as they leave the fair. He asks the older sister, Louise Lenzen, who is 14 at the time, to run an errand for him. He says, Would you be so very kind and get some cigarettes for me? <laughs> that was a terrible German accent. I'm going to try that again. It probably won't get any better. He says, Would you be so kind and get me some cigarettes? I'll look after the little girl. <laughs> Louise agrees, and as soon as she rounds the corner, Peter strangles the younger girl and slits her throat. When Louise comes back, Peter drags her into the brush, where he strangles her and almost decapitates her with his pocket knife. That same year, Peter kills five-year-old Gertrude Alberman, and then he sends a map to a local newspaper showing where her body can be found under a pile of construction debris. When the authorities find her body, they report that she had been strangled and stabbed 35 times. German police have very little to go on, given the fact that few, the few victims who survive can only give a description of a tall white man, which pretty much fits half of the population of a German town. Yeah. <laughs> on top of that, the police also received 900,000 different names from the public as potential suspects. Uh, out of curiosity, I checked on the population of Dusseldorf in the 1920s. Um, the earliest I could find was 1950, but they reported at that point that there were 600,000 people in Dusseldorf. So what that means is that if it was the same population at the time when he was doing these killings, uh, the police got 50% more tips on names than the actual population of the town. <laughs> so it would have been more efficient for them to go door to door than to 
follow any of the leads from How those suggestions. How many fucking creeps were living in Germany during that time? I mean, mm. Mm. Speaking, speaking I as it. someone who is descended from Germans, I'm not proud of uh, that little wedge of history, you know? <laughs> that's, that's not my favorite. Um, <laughs> there is only one potential victim that manages to fight back. Peter approaches a man in a darkened alley. He draws a knife on the man and goes to stab him between his third and fourth ribs. The blade breaks in half with the hilt shattering in Peter's hand, lacerating it in several places. The man turns slowly to him, saying, I'm fucking Nick Nolte. I am eternal. I hire a race of blade-wielding clown to shave my back hair, and he's never managed to cut me once. You think you're tougher than a clown, you little dipshit. God damn it. <laughs> In nineteen thirty, the Great Depression hits Germany hard, and an unemployed domestic servant named Mariah Budlick arrives in Dusseldorf looking for work. She meets a seemingly kind man who offers to show her to a boarding house where she can stay the night. He takes a quote shortcut through a park. She had heard of the vampire of Dusseldorf and becomes understandably concerned about her safety. She begins to argue and yell at him to try to get away, and fortunately, another man intervenes and rescues her from the first man. Mariah tells her rescuer that she is out of work and has nowhere to go. He invites her to his apartment to put her up. He doesn't introduce himself, but his name is Peter Curtin. So this poor lady... Followed some random dude that got, she got scared, understandably, and the person who rescues her is Peter. Yeah, because he was a troll in that park. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For a victim. And, and after rescuing her like that, I mean, she's going to automatically have more trust in him mm-hmm. that he's a good person. Um, he takes her back to his apartment. Peter's wife is away for the night, and he tries to have sex with Mariah. She rebuffs his advances, and he says that he will find her another place to stay. They jump on the tram, and when they get off, he takes her into the Grafenberger woods. Peter grabs her by the neck and rapes her before taking her back to the tram and walking away. When asked later why he let her go, he states, I had no intention of killing her as she offered no resistance. I also did not think that she would be able to find her way back home to my apartment. But Mariah has a sharper memory than Peter gives her credit for, and she remembers the street name and Peter's apartment in vivid detail. Understandably so. I mean, you go through that trauma, it's going to make a memory. Um, However, being deeply traumatized and ashamed of being a rape victim, she does not go to the police. She does, however, write a letter to a friend describing the attack. Unluckily for Peter, but luckily for the world, she puts the wrong address on the envelope. The letter is returned to the post office as undeliverable. A postal worker opens the letter to see if she can determine where it should go. Uh, She reads the contents and immediately hands it over to the police. Detectives are able to track Mariah down and convince her to give a full report of the attack. Eventually, she leads police back to the apartment building where she sees Peter on the stairs. She is terrified to point him out in the moment, um, even though she's surrounded by police. 
By the time she is able to push through her trauma response, Peter has packed a bag and fled. By the time she is able to push through her trauma response, Peter has packed a bag and fled. Peter moves to a nearby apartment and confesses to his wife what he had done to Maria. He tells her that he will most likely be sent to prison for a very long time and she would be destitute without his earnings. Peter later states, She raves that I should take my life. Then she would do the same, since her future was completely without hope. Peter then thinks it's a great idea to tell his wife that he's planning one last spectacular attack before he's caught. Uh, But fortunately, his wife immediately goes to the police. She convinces Peter to meet her in a park, and he is immediately surrounded by 24 police. He cracks right away and confesses his crimes. It even seems like he relishes going into explicit detail and, uh, and watching the police and stenographers wince when describing his horrors. It's learned that he is believed to have an eidetic memory, which is similar to a photographic memory. Mm-hmm. He can recall incredibly detailed facts going all the way back to his first murders and is not shy about revealing any of them. Um, They also discover at this point that he had been using that amazing memory to relive his kills over and over again in his head. Uh, By the end of the interrogation, he confesses to 79 attacks. He even states that the reason that his victims have wildly different numbers of stab wounds is because sometimes it took him longer to orgasm. Peter is put on trial in 1931 where he decides it's a great idea to change his mind and plead not guilty after that whole confession. Jesus. As it turned out, the judicial system doesn't just give up if you plead not guilty for reporting in detail about all your crimes. (laughs) Under intense questioning, he later changes his plea back to guilty and is eventually convicted of nine murders and sentenced to death. His last meal is Wiener Schnitzel, fried potatoes, and white wine. Throw a good old stein of room temp beer in there and you have a solid (laughs) German meal going on. Right. Just to make things weirder, he tells his psychiatrist during the meal that he can hear his own blood flowing in his body. Dude was just off his rocker. At 6 a.m. on July 2nd, 1931, he is led to the guillotine and beheaded. The reign of terror of the vampire of Dusseldorf finally comes to a close. His brain is examined for abnormalities, but none are actually found. His head is mummified and now sits in the Ripley's Believe It or Not Museum in the Wisconsin Dells. That's fucking weird. The Vampire of (laughs) Dufeldorf. The Vampire of Dusseldorf's head is sitting in a Ripley's Believe It or Not Museum in Wisconsin. That isn't... And going to be terrible at all. And the the funny <laughs> thing is, the uh, Wisconsin Dells are like the place to go in Wisconsin. Everyone in Wisconsin, if they're going on vacation, it's up north and or to the Dells. Those are the two places you go. So anytime you go on vacation in Wisconsin, you can go and visit his head. <laughs> that's fucking, that's lovely. 
fucking wild. The guy was disgusting. So Travis, I did not like that. <laughs> that it was, was like not, it was like mm. that was not fun. That it was, was not, not a fun one. <laughs> it was really hard to make jokes uh-huh. about. So he stabbed uh, yeah. the five year old, thirty seven. Like Jesus, fucking how's my quip gonna land with this? Yeah. No, that was a tough one for jokes. I even felt kind of dirty doing a German accent for him. That just, <laughs> right. <laughs> so, Travis, now that we've wrapped up this story, how many animals have you brutally stabbed to death for sexual gratification? Uh, a hard zero. <laughs> I don't want to know if you were hard. Uh, <laughs> no, the actual question is, if you were on death row, what would your last meal be? Golden Corral. <laughs> and you just never you stop just, eating? Just never stop eating. Brilliant. Just eating forever. Brilliant. <laughs> All you can eat. Yeah. You've seen how much I can eat. Just go slow. I could eat nonstop for the rest, like, for four years or so. Just ask for my heart fruit by out. the foot, but endless feet of it? <laughs> fruit by the quarter mile. <laughs> <laughs> just munch on it a bit. Man, that was, that was a good idea. I like that. See, um... Personally, I I would go filet mignon, medium rare, garlic mashed potatoes, um, a good whiskey, and a whole cheesecake. Mm. That that would be my last meal, and I would ask for uh, cyanide sprinkled over the cheesecake. <laughs> There's no way I'm letting them put me down. I'm I'm going out on my own terms, baby. <laughs> this is my decision. Uh, okay, so I, I think we need to uh, clear our heads a little bit after all of that horror. Um, give me some good news. What do you got? Good news, everyone! Well, that's not so horrible. I feel a little bit dirty even talking about LeVar Burton and the story, but it's about LeVar Burton. He's a uh, gem. He's a gem. Uh, he's getting the Children's and Family Emmy Award for Lifetime Achievement. For uh, reading Rainbow? For 23 years of reading Rainbow. Wow. I mean, of course, you know, LeVar Burton, his roots, Star Trek, and yep. he has his own podcast where he reads books. So that's I didn't cool. know about the podcast. Yeah, he has a podcast. Yeah, really? Yeah, 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 yeah. I need to introduce my kids to reading rainbow because yeah. it was just i i loved reading, reading rainbow. rainbow take a look it's in a book it's reading, reading rainbow, rainbow. Um, love it. that so he's getting an emmy for that though lifetime uh family and children's emmy really yeah so that is the, the that, first ever. Yeah. It's the first time they've done it so they're getting you know the oscar has the lifetime achievement award which uh um, God, why can't I remember Mr. Rogers? Fuck, I can't remember oh, yeah. Mr. Rogers. He won like the Lifetime <laughs> Achievement Award. the star award, of the show, Mr. Rogers? This will be the first uh, Children's and Family Emmy Awards. Oh, so, really? Yeah. That's huge. Yeah. yeah. Lavar Le- is, he's a fantastic human being. I love so next him. Next Gen, of course. Yep, absolutely. Rate and subscribe on whatever platform you use. Come back next week when we talk about the man who sold the Eiffel Tower. Okay. (laughs) Remember to only stab your victims a few times instead of a whole bunch of times. And always remember to make the world a little less horrible. Well, 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 that's horrible.